0: Hello and welcome to the Weekend Wrap for the week on Wednesday. My name is Ben Davison. I am your host on this Sunday, the 22nd of October in the year 2023. I hope wherever you're listening around Australia or indeed around the world, you have had a wonderful week and are getting set for another wonderful week to come. Of course, Van and I have unfortunately missed the last couple of Week on Wednesday episodes due to a series of unavoidable uh, medical uh, appointments. Thankfully, nothing is seriously wrong. We appreciate all the love and support of our listeners and supporters during this time. We hope to be able to come to you with an episode on Wednesday coming. During the last couple of weeks, of course, there has been a huge amount of news both overseas and in Australia. We did manage to get a Sunday episode out last week where we covered off the referendum. I don't intend to cover that ground again today. There will be lots of opportunity to break that down in the weeks and months to come. Of course, there's also been the horrendous, horrendous uh, situation uh, evolving uh, uh, and unfolding in the Middle East, and in particular, Gaza and Israel. Now, I want to be very, very clear about a couple of things here. I don't intend to talk about this a lot today because there's a lot of things that are actually going on here in Australia that have not had, in my view, enough coverage from local media. Of course, what's happening in Gaza and Israel is big news. It does impact people, significant numbers of people, particularly in that region, but also people here in Australia. And I don't want to diminish that in any way. And I don't want to diminish it by pretending that I'm an expert, or that my comments on this subject will somehow magically solve what is a long-standing, difficult problem. But some things I want to make very, very clear. Hamas is a terrorist organization. The people of Gaza have a right to live peaceful, free lives. The people of Israel have a right to live peaceful, free lives. The government of Benjamin Netanyahu, which is currently in control of Israel, has exhibited authoritarian tendencies and has tried to remove judicial oversight from the laws that that government has attempted to pass. None of that, none of that on either side, excuses the murder of civilians. None of that is justification for targeting civilian populations women, children, the elderly, even innocent men going about their day-to-day business. I want to be really, really clear about that. People will say, well, which side are you on? Are you on the side of Palestine? Are you on the side of Israel? I am on the side of the Palestinian people and the Israeli people, not Hamas, not Likud, which is the party of Benjamin Netanyahu. But the people, the people who want to go about their lives in peace, safe in the knowledge that they can raise their families, go about their work and live good, productive lives. Make no mistake, Hamas is not a democratically elected government and Benjamin Netanyahu is not interested in a two-state peaceful solution with a legitimate democratic Palestinian government either. Where does that leave the region? Well, it leaves the region in an incredibly volatile and difficult position. And perhaps most importantly, it leaves millions of civilians in the direct firing line of what is a very powerful military in the form of the Israeli Defense Force and what is a very committed terrorist organization in the form of Hamas. The international community needs to demand a ceasefire. It needs to demand a peaceful resolution to ensure that aid gets to civilian populations, to ensure that Israeli citizens are not subject to the kind of horrendous terrorist attacks that would visit upon them by Hamas, so that Palestinian citizens, Palestinian civilians are not caught in the firing line of anti-Hamas actions, by, whether they be by Israel or any other government actor. So, having said all of that, I'm sorry to say I don't have a better answer. I hope that Diplomatic Overtures are successful from world leaders right across the globe. But at the end of the day, here in Australia, we need to understand that what we do, what we can do, is in fact fairly limited. And I don't say that with any sense of pride or to be smug or to be self-righteous. I say that because Benjamin Netanyahu and the leadership of Hamas Neither are sitting by the phone waiting to hear from the Australian government or the Australian people about what to do next. Hamas is not interested in the welfare of the Palestinian people any more than they are necessarily interested in the welfare of the Israeli people. Benjamin Netanyahu has consistently, consistently done things that have put the lives of Israeli citizens at risk, that have put the lives of Palestinian civilians at risk. They are unlikely to stop doing that just because an Australian podcast tells them to. But for what it's worth, I am telling them to. Just a reminder, Hamas is not an elected representative body for the majority of Palestinian people it is a terrorist organization Benjamin Netanyahu who leads the Likud party does not represent every Jewish person on the face of this planet and in fact in fact his government rules Israel through coalition and it could be argued he doesn't even represent the entire population of Israel It's worth remembering that as we enter what may well be a colossal, as it was said on Insiders, a colossal humanitarian tragedy because of those two forces fighting each other in Gaza. Now, there will be a lot more that will go on in that space, as there has been for the last... 2,000 plus years, but for today, I do want to focus on some of the domestic Australian stories that perhaps have not had as much coverage or as much engagement as we would have liked. In fact, most of what I'm going to talk about today was not even mentioned on Insiders, despite the fact that this was a parliamentary sitting week and some significant pieces of legislation were introduced. There was a massive decision in the High Court and there have been numerous industrial actions involving thousands of workers and a resolution to a potential industrial conflict, which may have had a huge impact on Australia's export of natural gas. And of course, Australia is the world's largest exporter of natural gas. None of that was covered on Insiders today because of the focus on the Middle East. And while I understand the global fascination with what's happening in the Middle East. And while I understand people's concern and people who have family there, who have connections there, and of course the long standing uh, religious icons that exist in that region, I want to focus on some of these issues that are impacting people right here, right now in Australia, because otherwise these stories don't get talked about in any way shape or form. So the first one I want to kick off with is the National Skills Agreement. This is a huge deal. 30 billion dollars, 30 billion dollars into our skills and training system. If you ask anyone in business anywhere across Australia, one of the biggest challenges they'll say they have is finding people who are skilled and capable to do the work they need done. You want to get a tradesperson you know what that's like at the moment. Long time to wait. High costs. If you are a tradesperson, you know how much pressure you're under to get work done. Now, this has been this has been praised by the ACTU, the Australian Union Movement, um, the Australian Industry Group, and yet this was somehow or another ridiculed by. Peter Dutton, and his no alition Brennan O'Connor got up in Parliament, announced this fantastic agreement with all the states and territories and the Commonwealth to put $30 billion into our skills and training system, including $414 million for an additional 300,000 fee-free TAFE places in the year 2024. This is about building up our domestic capacity. This is about relieving the pressure in the system. You know, lots of people make lots of outrageous, wild, sometimes conspiratorial claims about migration, about replacing Australian workers, all these sorts of things. Well, let me tell you, these are this is a tangible, a tangible thing that the Albanese Labor Government and the state and territory governments are doing to ensure that Every Australian has the capacity to do the work that is needed, to build the career that they want, to live the life that they want and participate as an active member in our Commonwealth and build their own wealth, their own capacity. It's a huge deal, massive, massive investment. Dwarves anything done by the Morrison government and yet very little media coverage. We have to focus on what's important here for hundreds of thousands of people. In the year 2024, 300,000. 300,000. That is the population of Geelong going through fee free TAFE. The entire population, every man, woman, and child of every age, right? That is almost the population. (laughs) of uh i think it's almost the population of hobart like we're talking about huge numbers of people getting training getting skills this is a initiative that is supported by business that is supported by unions and of course you should be joining your union right you can go to australianunions.org.au/wow because Yes, they've also made, by the way, comments about the situation in the Middle East, but have not lost focus on these key issues around skills, around training, around parental leave, which I'll talk about in a moment, around wages, and I'll talk about some more issues around that soon too. Unions are doing these things, and why is it important to be part of a union? Because the no poo-poos this sort of thing. You know, it says it boos it in Parliament House it decries it you know because just because they think it's pro worker it's quite outrageous this will deliver higher wage employment for hundreds of thousands of people not just next year or the year after but for years and years and years so congratulations to Brendan O'Connor and uh, the Albanese Labor government and all of the state and territory governments who've gotten involved now, of course, I did mention workers taking action to increase their wages. And this week, again, not mentioned on Insiders, one of the biggest industrial actions we have seen in this country in many, many years. 1,400 dairy workers went on strike for 48 hours from Saputo, Fonterra, Lactalis and Peters. The United Workers' Union co- coordinated these actions. They worked with these workers in these workplaces, their agreements were expired, there was community actions in places all around the country. These are dairy workers. These are often very low-paid workers. These are workers in regional communities where there are very limited other sources of employment. And what these workers have done is they have turned that narrative on its head. They have organized and said, yes, there may be limited... Uh, other forms of employment here, but there is also limited supplies of labor. And what we do is valuable. It is valuable for the people, not just in the town itself, not just for the company, but for all of the downstream uh, supply chain uh, recipients. So, whether it's ice cream, whether it's cheese makers, and for the downstream consumers, supermarket shoppers in our cities and towns right across the country. Rely on dairy farm workers to produce and and to uh, to pasteurise the milk, to to do what is needed to make it safe to consume, to bottle it, and to send it out. This is a huge story. This is a huge win for working people. A, a massive display of worker power. And a shout-out, again, to the United Workers' Union and, and, by the way, to the Transport Workers' Union, whose truck drivers refused to pick up from many of these locations uh, where companies had attempted to break the strike by using non-unionised workforces. This is what solidarity looks like. Workers standing together... It, often even in different unions, to say, if it is not fair, it is not fair, and we will not stand for it. Uh, they're not the only ones. The Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union members in Tasmania uh, with the Metro uh, bus lines have been on strike as well. Nothing, again, in insiders or the media around this. Basically, because the state government in Tasmania refuses to negotiate a fair outcome for the mechanics who keep the buses running. I mean, these seem like such simple things. Why, why are state governments in Tasmania, liberal state government, trying to make workers take a real terms pay cut when they're responsible for the safe transportation? of our children, of our elderly, of our commuters. Why? Because they think they can get away with it. Well, congratulations to the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union members who have stood up in Tasmania and said, we will not, we will not be exploited by a crooked, cooked liberal government. Then, of course, you may have seen some of this because... uh, Credit where it's due, the National Social Education Union, the NTU, the Union for Higher Education Workers, has an absolutely on point social media game, as you would expect, as you would expect perhaps from academics who are on social media, uh, who are engaged with it quite a lot, interacting with each other, sharing ideas, sharing journal articles, doing all the things that, you know in our ideal world, would be the bulk of what we use the internet for. We know, unfortunately, that's probably not the bulk of what the internet is used for. However, they are using it predominantly for those purposes and for sharing their actions of solidarity. We've seen NTU members take actions at universities all over Victoria in the recent week or so. We know there are actions planned in Queensland, again, We have seen a mass casualisation in higher education. We have seen the driving down of the wages of tutors, of lecturers. We have seen the introduction of insecure employment. These are all things, by the way, which will be partly addressed by Labor's closing the loopholes bill. But of course, we've seen the corporatisation of university management we've seen mining executives end up as senior quote-unquote leaders in universities. Why? Because they are trying to squeeze down on the workers. The end results of that may well be catastrophic, and we may well not know them for many, many years, as the pipeline and the quality of education is not fully realised, the outcomes of which are not fully realised for many years after the initial changes are made. We're living through it now with TAFE. We're living through it now and why we have to have this National Skills Agreement. Because a decade ago, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull then Scott Morrison gutted TAFE, gutted the National Skills Sector. And we have to now invest to rebuild it. There is a good chance that we are living through some of that in higher ed now too. But credit to the workers at the universities that are standing up for a fair deal, standing up for better job security, better wages, to say we don't want to lose our best and brightest minds from research, development, coming up with new ideas for how we live our lives, for how we improve our lives, because university management don't see any value in that, but actually the corporate world does. Where do they think these people go? They don't disappear into the ether. They get picked up by major corporations and engaged to do very specific things instead. Now, it's not all industrial action and struggle on the barricades, comrades, although we know that that continues even at NSIS in the, uh, with the uh, Electrical Trade Union, I think they're now in week fourteen, where they have been holding the line so strongly. Uh, the elect- Electrical Trade Union, big shout out to them, holding that line. But we have seen the Offshore Alliance, the Australian Manufacturing, uh, sorry, the Australian Workers Union and the Maritime Union of Australia. That's the Australian Workers Union and the Maritime Union of Australia as the Offshore Alliance. Again, unions coming together, workers coming together in their unions to build a stronger union, a stronger union presence to take on a global powerhouse in the form of Chevron who wanted those workers who are delivering billions of dollars of value, not just to Chevron, but also to the Australian economy in the form of tax revenue. Now, don't get me wrong, there's lots of things wrong with how we tax gas, that we export in this country. We could be doing a lot better. There's a lot more we could do. I've talked about it on the week on Wednesday. I'm happy to talk about it more. But today, let me just be really, really clear and give a big congratulations to those workers from the Offshore Alliance at the Australian Workers Union and the MUA who stood together against a global giant and got a fair deal. And it's a message. There's a message in that. If they can do it, you can do it. We can all do it. Our governments can do it. Our governments can stand up against Chevron and say, no, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna get these piddly tax arrangements. You're gonna get properly taxed, and we're gonna put that money into the Commonwealth of Australia for the people of Australia. Workers are leading the way in these spaces. Whatever you think of the extraction of natural gas, it is happening and will continue to happen for some time. These projects are not about to simply shut down. There is huge global demand for gas. Australia exports massive amounts of it and we deserve a fair share of it. And these workers have said they deserve a fair share of the value they're creating and they've won it. So congratulations to them. Now, Doesn't matter what industry you're in, doesn't matter if you're in the public sector, if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher, shout out to my friends at the Australian Education Union. I know World Teachers Day is coming up on Friday, the 27th of October. Keep your eyes peeled. I have an inkling there'll be lots of interesting things happening around Friday and then beyond Friday in the public uh, education space and for our public schools, just... Just a heads up, I'm not going to give away too much. Certainly worth keeping an eye on the Australian Education Union social media channels, the For Every Child uh, accounts as well. Uh, Karina Haythorpe, president of the AAU, will be, uh, I'm sure, out there on social media. World Teachers Day on Friday, the 27th of October. Make a note of that. But whatever you do, there is a union for you to join and a real union, a real union, not some former Liberal Party stooge thing they've set up as some sort of shell insurance provider to take money away uh, from you and from the collective, but a real union which you can join at australianunions.org.au slash wow. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world, a lot of stuff. Joining your union is important. And, of course, unions are fighting for legislative and regulatory change as well. Parental leave was something else that has come into the parliament. You know, this again did not get a mention on Insiders. It boggles my mind that something as important as going from 20 weeks to 26 weeks of paid parental leave by 2026 just didn't rate a mention on Insiders. This is a huge win, particularly for women, but for everybody. The societies that have good, robust, well-remunerated parental leave schemes have better social and economic outcomes. You only need to look at the research that comes out of Scandinavia, Northern Europe, the EU, to see how much better, much better quality of life is. The educational outcomes, the start to life that children have, the lives that their parents get to lead. It's such an important part of what we can do as a nation. Now, I've seen some people grumble about this, It's sort of unbelievable that people would grumble about this, you know, almost as if, well, I didn't get it when I raised my kids 40 years ago. Well, okay, sure, I understand that, you know, that's disappointing that you didn't get it. But should we never improve things? Of course not. We now know that we can do this. We can make these investments that don't cost that much money, when you think about the size of our economy, you think about the billions and the trillions of dollars that our economy is worth, when we're talking about spending a couple of hundred million dollars to help working families spend a little bit more time with their children, have a little bit easier transition back into work, when we know when we know that women's earnings are 55% lower in the first five years after they give birth than they are in the five years before they give birth. We know that. 55% lower, right? That is a cost that households bear. And you, and when people go, oh, well, why should the taxpayer pay for that? What do you think happens? you think the taxpayer doesn't end up paying for that anyway? Do you think in the long run the taxpayer is not paying for that in the form of higher pension payments, higher medical bills, Uh increased costs of mental health, uh, family breakdowns, uh, increased unemployment expenses. Do we think that somehow or another these things are not intersectional? They don't interact with one another? Of course they do. Of course they do. And we know from experience, time and time and time again, we know the earlier we can intervene and provide support, provide policy frameworks and provide programs that give people what they need, when they need it, the less we have to invest and spend in the long run fixing what could have been prevented. And we know with parental leave, there's such an opportunity there, not just to prevent problems that might need to be fixed down the road, but to create opportunity, to create improvement. What a huge outcome. So between now and 2026, uh, paid parental leave will go from 20 weeks to 26 weeks. That's six months. You know, it's not still not the best scheme in the world and there are still uh, issues with it and there's still a need to get superannuation paid on it. There's still a whole range of things that need to be improved, but it's a good move in the right direction. Again, very little coverage, very little coverage uh, because of what's going on in other parts of the world. Now, the, the last thing I want to talk about, before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your week uh, until Wednesday, when Van and I will come and talk to you again for the week on Wednesday, is the electronic vehicles, sorry, the electric vehicle road tax uh, decision that happened in the High Court uh, this week. So let's be really clear. Labor governments in three states, uh, well, firstly, the Labor government in Victoria passed uh, a road user tax, On electric vehicles uh, that was challenged by a couple of electric vehicle owners uh, and has gone to the High Court, went all the way to the High Court. Now, a number of states, New South Wales and WA, were also considering doing this. Uh, They would have made three states. They waited until the High Court decision was handed down. Every state and territory uh, joined Victoria in the case because, (laughs) and this is where things get a little bit full on, there are a number of things that may be affected by this. So, During the course of the case, it was argued that uh, duties on the transfer transfer or conveyance of goods, motor vehicle duties and vehicle registration charges, commercial passenger vehicle levies, gaming machine levies, and point-of-consumption betting charges and waste disposal levies may now be in serious doubt if the electric vehicles law was struck down. And it was struck down. Let's be really clear about this. I've seen some people celebrating this, right, saying this is really great, it means there's no tax on electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are road users. This was Victoria's attempt to say you don't pay fuel excise. Fuel excise is the mechanism that we use to fund roads in this country. And fair enough, people don't pay fuel excise if they don't consume petrol and that's fair enough. So Victoria said, well, we need another way to fund roads. This is a sort of direct connection. If you're driving on the roads, we're going to charge you based on how much you drive. High Court has said that's unconstitutional, right? That's that's the reality. What it does do, according to Justice James Edelman, who was in the minority, this was a three to two decision, by the way. this was a very close High Court decision and it overturned essentially overturned presidents from the 1970s. Justice Edelman says that there is serious doubt over whether states can levy taxes on gifts or inheritance, some payroll and industrial land taxes, licenses to carry on a business, taxes on carrying goods, or on the ownership, possession, use, or destruction of goods. That is a phenomenally impactful decision. Now, again, was not covered off on insiders the entire scope of what the decision means is still not clear, right? Some of the states are saying, well, now the Commonwealth will have to step in and create a road user charge of some kind. Uh, there's talk of other taxes changing. There's talk of the way registration cha- taxes or registr- vehicle registrations are charge- changing. Nobody really knows what this means yet, except that if these other things are found to be unconstitutional as well as a result of this precedent, which basically says states do not have the right to impose uh, excise taxes on consumption. That's what they're saying, right? States do not have that. That is a power of the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth only. And so the states can't do that. If that means all those other things are things where the state cannot raise revenue, that is billions and billions of dollars that simply will not be available for roads, for schools, for hospitals, for all of the services that we rely on, public transport, uh, for public amenities, for, you know, you name it, right? There's lots of things state governments do, whether it's funding councils to do them, funding community groups to do them or doing them themselves, that will be at risk. Now, the Commonwealth may well now go, well, well, we've got the power to do all those things, so we're going to create some kind of national framework. It's a watch and see kind of space. Again, no clear answer about what this means. Uh, Interesting shift. The Teals originally very happy that the road user fee was struck down, you know, calling it a win for electric vehicle owners. And, you know, it is. There's no question. It's a win for electric vehicle owners. But then these sort of potential ramifications dawned on them and they have started to couch their uh, celebrations with, well, we think the Commonwealth will have to move quickly to ensure there is some kind of uh, just uh, an equitable road user fees uh, put in place because obviously fuel excise, we want fuel excise to go down. Fuel excise going down means uh, oil consumption goes down, oil consumption goes down. Uh, Actually, I saw some modelling on this recently. (laughs) While we do definitely want oil consumption to go down and fuel efficiency to improve and and use of electric vehicles as renewables come onto the grid more and more is good, cleaning the grid and using renewables is the key part of that. By the way, Again, not covered off on Insiders or really covered by mainstream media, Uh, the use of renewables in Australia in the last 10 days uh, has got to the point where it halved the wholesale electric price in the national market, huge outcome. But of course, the money that comes from fuel excise disappears as the fuel consumption goes down, so we need to find ways to fund our roads which means if you're using the roads, we're going to have to find some way of making people pay to do that in a way that's equitable, right? We want to be equitable about this. You know, we understand. I understand that you can't just say, well, we're going to have a flat fee and people who are on very low incomes are going to have to pay a huge proportion of their income. Like, these are not easy things to do just to resolve and as more and more people go electric it's going to be it's going to need a detailed and nuanced policy solution very finally, I just also want to say, Bill Hayden, former Governor General, former Labor Party leader, the Labor Party leader that stood aside for Bill, uh, for Bob Hawke to become leader and Prime Minister, uh, passed away uh, this week, uh, yesterday, uh, on the twenty-first uh, of October. You know, Bill Hayden, well remembered as Governor General, um, well respected as Governor General, was also the architect of Whitlam's Medibank, uh, health program the first universal health scheme in this country and should be remembered for his many policy contributions uh, over a long period of time to this country as well and of course uh, our thoughts and sympathies and condolences to his family and the many people who loved who loved him uh, that generation of of great labor leaders and policy thinkers uh, is entering the twilight of their lives and we've seen Bob Hawke passed, obviously, and now Bill Hayden as well, and others uh, in in recent times. Uh, the legacy they leave for us, uh, those of us who listen, the people who listen to this show, people who are involved in politics in this country who want to see a better, stronger, progressive and more equitable Commonwealth of Australia, uh, the legacy that they have left for us to build on is enormous and we hope to live up to that each and every day. That's it for the weekend wrap. Uh, I've gone over 35 minutes today. Obviously, we didn't do a show on Wednesday. There were some just things I wanted to talk about that didn't involve, uh, I guess, foreign affairs, because I know that's a big part of the news you'll be getting from all sorts of other sources, and for many good reasons. And I don't, um, as I've said, I understand that. That is a, a terrible situation over there but lots of things happening here as well many of them good and lots of things that we can get involved in to support and build our communities right here uh, for the better so until wednesday when i'll be joined by van for a week on wednesday remember to be kind to yourself and to each other